in Numbers 22, we have a story about um, a prophet. And so let me just kind of summarize the story for you. So during the time that the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, um, they ended up right by the Jordan River across from where the plains of Moab began. So when the king of Moab found out that um, the Israelites were close to where he is, he became very paranoid because he had heard stories of a large group of people leaving Egypt, um, how they were defeating anyone that came against them. So he's very scared for him and his people. So he sent messengers to a prophet named Balaam to pretty much talk him into coming and cursing the Israelites. So when the princes came to Balaam, he told them, okay, well, hold on. I need to pray and see what God has for me, what I need to do. So Balaam petitions that night God for an answer of what he's supposed to do. So then in Numbers twenty two twelve it says, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So the next morning, Balaam goes back to the messengers and tells them, look, I can't do this. God will not let me go with you. So the messengers go back um, to the king and they tell him, you know, he's not going to come. So the king sends more honorable princes as messengers to go back to Balaam with the message saying that anything in the king's kingdom Balaam can have if he curses this group of people. So messengers go back to Balaam. Balaam said, even for all the gold and the silver in the king's castle, I still have to see what the Lord has for me. So he goes back to the Lord and asks, what am I supposed to do? So God tells them, if they're calling you to go with them, go with them. But you must do as I tell you. So Balaam goes, tells the men the next morning, okay, I can go with you. He brings his donkey along. So as they're traveling, this donkey just quits walking on the road, just goes, veers off into a field. Balaam's like, what's going on? So he hits his donkey to get her back on the path that they're supposed to be going. A little later on, they're passing a vineyard, and there's two huge walls on either side of the road. So the donkey ends up pushing herself against the wall with Balaam's leg stuck between her and the wall. Balaam's freaking out again, hits his donkey, tries to get her back on the road. Just a little bit later, the donkey just quits walking and just lays on the ground. Balaam's angry at this point, right? He doesn't know what's going on, so he hits his donkey again. Now, what Balaam didn't know is that the donkey saw an angel of the Lord with a sword in its hand in her path. So she was just getting out of the way of this scary-looking angel. Okay, um, so then later on here in Numbers twenty-two verses 20, Numbers twenty-two verses twenty-eight, it says, "Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times?'" And Balaam said to the donkey, "Because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand so I could kill you." Then the donkey said to Balaam, "Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden on all your life to this day?" Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. 
Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So then as they continue on, they finally get to where the king is. They get to a place where um, they can see the people of Israel by the Jordan River. Um, And instead of Balaam going along with what the king wanted him to do and curse the Israelites, he instead made an altar, made sacrifices, went to the Lord in prayer what on what he wanted him to say. So it ended up that Balaam blessed the Israelites three times rather than cursing them. So he went against what the king wanted him to do. However, God had to speak through a donkey and an angel with a sword in its hand to get Balaam's attention as to what he wanted Balaam to do, not what Balaam thought he should do. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for uh, this morning. I just pray that as we open up your word over the next few moments, that you would just let us hear from you, that you would quiet our minds, that you would push aside all distractions, that you would just call, call us to a place of calm and a place of rest. Whatever we're carrying, whatever our burdens, that we'd be able to lay them all down and hear from you. Pray that your words would speak to us this morning. I pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, this summer for me marks eight years doing camp ministry. And one of the things that, one of the always the favorite activities at camp is the zip line. Now, the zip line is kind of crazy if you really stop and think about it. It's, it, it's this idea that is, okay, let me take this child. We're going to go up onto this top of this 40-foot platform or whatever. I'm going to take this steel cable, and I'm going to strap you onto it with a rope and then push you off a tower. It's just, you think about it, and it kind of boggles your mind why it's so popular, but it's just that thrill of stepping off over the edge and doing the impossible. It seemed impossible flying, right? And But at the end of it, if we think about it, there's always these campers who just can't take that step off the edge. Every year, there's one who you've convinced, and they climb up, they go to the tower, they get to the top, you've got them all hooked up, you're having them look and seeing the rope, seeing the cable, it's safe, you're safe. All of this. But the uncertainty of the moment that they have to step off the tower, it's, mm can't do that. Not going to go there. Then you turn around and you say, well, you know, your only option is to go back down the way you came up. Climb back down the ladder. And for most, that's enough incentive to just go over the edge. But there's always at least one who can't handle the uncertainty of climbing back down the ladder or the rock wall or going off the edge. They're paralyzed by their uncertainty right there on the platform. Knees shaking, usually there's some tears, and they're frozen, solid, can't move. Uncertainty has them pinned in. And real life has the same ability. Uncertainty so often can hem us in on every side. It seems like confidence is only something made up in dreams. But if we look across the breadth of Scripture, we see God's people stepping off in confidence throughout all sorts of uncertain circumstances. 
How do they do that? How do they get to that point of confidence in the midst of uncertainty? And so this morning, we're going to face this looming giant of uncertainty so that we can be confident. Well, we can be confident in this, that God has input for us and God wants us to listen up. And so we're going to take a step across Scripture and we're going to hear how God spoke into these uncertain moments. Okay, I'm reading First uh, Samuel chapter 1. This is the story about Hannah. Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children. Now this already grieved her, I'm sure. Now every year, her husband Elkanah would go worship and sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. On the day he sacrificed, Elkanah would give portions to his other wife, Peninnah, and all her sons and daughters. But he would give a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. Now Peninnah, in my Bible version, uh, it calls her Hannah's rival. And it says she grievous, she, hold on, uh, Peninnah grieved or provoked Hannah. And it says grievously because she wasn't able to have children. Now, this caused very much anxiety, distress, and heartbreak for Hannah to the point of not being able to eat. And after having enough, after the meal, the last meal, she went to the temple and prayed to the Lord, deeply distressed and weeping bitterly. And if you'll look in verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction affliction of your servant, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to you, your servant, a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now Eli was sitting by the doorpost of the temple, and he observed Hannah, thinking to himself, she must be drunk. For he could not see her lips moving but no, and no sound coming out of her mouth. Eli approached her, and when, he, let's see, when Eli approached her about this, she explained her situation. And then in verse 17 and 18, it says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, what this says to me, and how God spoke to Hannah, after Hannah poured her heart and soul out before the Lord, to the point of not being able to speak audibly, she laid her burdens down before God. And God, through Eli, offered peace and acceptance of his plan. Now, she could have continued with the anxiety and heartache, but she chose peace in God's plan and timing, whatever his answer. Hannah chose peace. Acts 1, 12 through 26. This is the story when the disciples have been with Jesus for 40 days, and he's taken up into heaven, and they're left wondering what to do next. So the the disciples, Mary, the uh, brothers of Jesus, 
the other women, and a total of about 120 people go to the upper room, and they pray, continually pray. And during that time, Peter stands up, and he decides that he's going to address the people. Peter usually has have something to say, and usually when he does, he stands up. And um, <clears throat> during um, this time, Peter stands up, and he says, verse 16 and 17, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he has counted among us and received his share in the ministry. When I was reading through this, I was just wondering about the hurt that Peter and probably the disciples had about what Judas had done. And Peter, being wise at this point, He begins to stand up and tell the people that, hey, this is about prophecy. He prophesied, the Bible prophesied about what Judas was going to do. And um, when when Peter stands up to do that, he tells the people that we're going to choose another 12th person. So they have to have a 12th man. And um, some of the qualifications that they had for um, the man that they were going to choose was um, like in verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time. That means they were with Jesus from the very beginning. Through his baptism, till he was taken up into the ascension, and that he would be a witness to the resurrection. They just didn't pick anybody off the street. This man was with them and shared life with them and with Jesus. And... um Verse 23 um, says, So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men. It wasn't just, oh, you just pick whoever you want. They knew that this choice was going to be from the Lord, and they trusted who the Lord was going to show them. Show which one of these two you have chosen to to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. They didn't just throw the lots just to guess. They had already prayed to Christ, and they had already prayed for God to show them, and they used the lots, and the Lord allowed them to use that so they could pick the person. This is the last time that that the casting of lots is used in the New Testament or in the Bible in general because the Holy Spirit is fixing to come and they didn't need to use that anymore. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is of the Lord. Not too many years after the choosing of a new disciple and the coming of the Holy Spirit, As the early believers carried the good news about Jesus further and further from Jerusalem, they were faced with a recurring question. What do we do with the Gentiles? The question was not about whether or not the Gentiles could be followers of Jesus. God had made it abundantly clear that salvation was for the Gentiles as well. No, the question was whether or not a new believer had to first become a full-fledged Jew, in order to be a Christ follower? To some early believers, the answer was simple. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. Most of the earliest believers were Jews. Even the Roman government viewed them as a Jewish sect. Thus, in order to follow Jesus, 
It was easy. You must become a Jew. However, as the good news spread, Gentiles began to believe. And God gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he did for the Jewish followers, making no distinction between them. In Acts chapter 15, we see this debate come to a head when Paul and Barnabas are confronted by some Jews in Antioch of Syria. These Jews demanded that all Gentile believers must be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, they wanted becoming a full-fledged Jew to be a prerequisite for following Jesus. So after much debate with these men, Paul and Barnabas decided to travel to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the other leaders of the church. Because such disagreement could not persist, the early church found itself at a critical decision point, perhaps the most important in all of Christian history. They were tasked with answering the question, would following Jesus move beyond Judaism or not? Did you have to become a Jew in order to be a Christ follower? And they needed to hear from God. So what did they do? They met. In verse 6 of chapter 15 in Acts, it says, The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is the meeting we know as the Jerusalem Council. The group of early Christ followers discussed, listened, and discerned. They heard testimonies from Peter, Paul and Barnabas, James, and likely others, even those who had dissenting opinions. Let's listen in to a part of this council in verses 12 and following. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles and all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. At the Jerusalem Council, when faced with the most important of decisions, the apostles and elders gathered together and listened for God's leading. For God's voice. And God did speak. God spoke by making no distinction between Jew or Gentile. God spoke by sending the Holy Spirit to Gentile believers. God spoke by doing miraculous signs among the Gentiles. God spoke through his prophets who foretold of the inclusion of the Gentiles and God's plan to redeem humanity. God spoke through his work in the world.
And so you hear that God speaks into uncertain circumstances. And no such uncertain circumstances could be said more so than the ones found in Jeremiah. And so this morning, Jeremiah 33.3 may be a familiar passage to some of you. It says, Ask me and I will tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about things to come. Now, a lot of times, the way I've learned this, the way I memorized it as a child, this is a passage just plucked out of this. I, the story of Jeremiah was not in my brain. But Jeremiah, a preacher of 40-some-odd years, preaching to the nation of Judah with no results. My great-grandfather was a preacher, and recently uh, I inherited his notes and was able to scan in his sermon notes. And on the back of one, I started to notice he had these notations. And this one had the letters N-R. I was like, that's weird. And I noticed it on several different ones. I was like, N-R, what does that mean? I was trying to think of the name of his church. I was like, not the name of his church. And I was trying to figure it out. And then I saw on one of them, one baptism, another one, one membership. And so it was actually his notation of response N-R, no response. If we were to say that for Jeremiah, we would see on the back of all his sermons, N-R, no response, for 40 years. Talk about uncertain circumstances for him, for his family, for his nation. The Babylonians have ridden into the countryside, burned down all the cities, and are surrounding the capital city. Jeremiah is in prison The king of Judah has put him in prison for preaching the truth. The king wanted to hear prophets who were going to say, oh yeah, we're going to defeat the Babylonians. God's on our side. Jeremiah kept preaching what he'd been preaching for 40 years. Y'all have left God. Turn back to God. Punishment is coming. No one listened. And now punishment is here. And here in Jeremiah 33.3, this promise that God lays out. Ask me, and I will show you remarkable secrets. The secret is that God was changing this message. For 40 years, Jeremiah had preached, turn to God or be destroyed, but now there's this huge shift. Don't fear. Turn to God, and he will restore us. Punishment is here. It's too late. But turn to God, and he will restore us. Jeremiah was able to have confidence in the midst of this uncertain of circumstances as his world was being turned upside down, his neighbor's world, his family's world, as his nation was ripped at the seams. In the midst of these very uncertain circumstances that we've seen in these five biblical examples, we see folks who are completely confident in moving forward. A confidence that only comes from encountering the one true God. We've heard about God speaking through donkeys and angels and directly to people through casting lots, through foreign armies, through scripture, and through experience with the Holy Spirit. Out of these and so many other biblical examples, we see the testimony of many others that God wants us to hear his voice. And God being the creator is the ultimate in creativity. I think we've seen that already this morning. And he will find a way for us to hear him. He wants us to hear his voice. And the only path of confidence is in hearing God's voice. So as we begin this week, the Sunday morning, a week 
a huge week in the life of our church as we consider a building renovation, as we seek to position ourselves to do the work God is calling us to now and in the future, we are faced with this moment of decision, with this moment of uncertainty. How do we move confidently into that decision? This is how. We all know how radio works. You flip on the power, which there's no power right now to this one. But you flip on the power, you tune up your station, and you turn up the volume, and the music plays. Now, if you're done with listening to the radio, you flip off the music, right? Or do you? The AM waves, the FM waves, they're all in this room with us right now. If I were to turn the radio on, it would work, it would play. I turn it off, it doesn't cease to make those waves happen. So, too, with God. God is speaking, God is moving, God is working. Are we tuning in? Are we turning on our radios? Are we paying attention We can move confidently into a decision when we crank up the radio. First, we have to turn it on. From a very young age, God had let Jeremiah know his specific plan for the people of Judah. Our confidence begins in this exact same place, knowing that God has a plan. God wants us to know it, and he will not make us guess as to what that plan is. This is the first step in turning, in turning on our radio. We flip from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. We look all through Scripture, and we see a God who is at work, a God who has worked, a God who is working, working to redeem all creation to himself. His plan of redemption includes you, includes me, includes Crestwood, and beyond. And we can be confident knowing that God is in charge, that he has a plan. And God's perfect will and plan often involves giving us a choice. And so that's the reason why simply flipping our radio on is not enough. We have to then tune in. We can't just turn on our radio. We have to tune in. We have to position ourselves to hear from God. When we're faced with a moment of uncertainty, it is not enough simply to know that God has a plan. We need to get to know that plan. We need to look at the first part of God's instruction to Jeremiah. He says, ask me. Ask me. We have to position ourselves to hear. So what does that mean? What does it mean to position ourselves to hear from God? It's simple as Jeremiah's instruction. Simply ask. We tune in by asking God to speak. And when we ask him to speak, we come to him with expectation that he, will, that he will give an answer. In each of these examples this morning that we've heard, we can see genuinely how each person desperately and earnestly sought to hear an answer from God for their uncertain moment. You might say, it's kind of like a friend calls you up and says, hey, let's go to lunch. And so you go there, you arrive at lunch on time, but she's nowhere to be seen. Fifteen minutes later, she comes bursting in the door, full of hurry, full of worry, takes a seat at the table. The whole time you're sitting there trying to talk, she seems frazzled, completely distracted, checking her cell phone, answering several calls, taking some text messages, responding to them. 
updating her Instagram. Everything she talks about is her problems of the day, what she needs to get done for the rest of the day. As soon as you finish your last bite of food, she drops a $100 bill on the table and says, can you take care of this, and walks out. There's not much connection going on there, not much relationship happening in that lunch. And a lot of times, this is we say, where's God? Why is God not speaking into my uncertain moment? But we don't set up that intentional space. We don't take that intentional time to have quality time with God. If we're going to ask God... As he says to Jeremiah, ask me. We must expect an answer. We expect an answer when we stop our busyness, when we, we stop our words and we listen. We see in these five examples that God can and will speak in any way he needs to. But we have to be there to stop, to listen, to receive that message. There's so many ways we can be intentional with God, and no matter if we choose to fast wake up early, wear a reminder, drive the long way home from work, or whatever you do that helps you concentrate on God, we can be confident that God will speak. Four of these biblical examples, for sure, we know that they have a regular pattern of prayer. And so as they approached God, they were already knowing that he had shown up in the past and he would show up again. And so the more often we tune into God and ask him about his plan, the easier it becomes to recognize when God is speaking. We gain confidence in the midst of uncertainty when we tune in, when we make time, when we're intentional about hearing from God. So we got the radio on. We've got it tuned into the right station. Now we've got to crank it up. How many times have you been driving down the highway and only to look over and see someone who is just having a whole lot of fun? They've got the radio cranked up all the way. Their mouth is just moving. You know they're singing at the top of their lungs. They're dancing. They are just have it cranked out. In Jeremiah 33.3, God says, ask me and I will show you. There's an implied next step after that. Ask me, I'll show you. And that means then you must do something about it. Crank it up. And so often this means that we have to let go of our preconceived ideas, our hang-ups, and we just have to start responding to whatever God is asking of us. So if we say, God, where are you in the midst of uncertain times? We have to expect an answer, an answer that we have to be prepared to act on. Jeremiah had this situation a couple of chapters before where we read in Jeremiah 33:3. Here the army of Babylon rolls into Jerusalem surrounding the city. All everybody knows what's happening. The city is going to be destroyed. We're going to be carted off to captivity. God comes to Jeremiah. Go out and buy a field. Do what God buy a field? Why do I need a field? We're we're about to be destroyed, not live here. I'm going to restore this place. And that's going to be a symbol, buy a field. So Jeremiah goes out, buys a field, crazy as it sounds. When we come to God and we're intentional, and we say, God, speak, God, and we ask God, he'll show up. But we have to be ready to answer. We have to be ready to crank it up. So if we're going to be confident in the midst of uncertainty, we have to be willing to take risk to step off that zipline tower, to buy a field. We must be willing to risk whatever it is God is showing us because we have this promise that if we ask, God will show up. And then we have to act. So if we want to honor God with our decision, we have to power on, tune in, and crank it up. 
We must come to God hungry deep down in the midst of our gut to hear, hungry to hear from him, fully expecting him to show up. If each of us does this, and then we come together in making our decision, we can be confident in the path that God has for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We just thank you for the promise that you have laid out here, that if we come to you, we earnestly seek you, that you will show up, that we can expect an answer, that your plan is no guessing game, God, and we thank you for that. And we pray that as we live in the midst of uncertain moments in our church, has this uncertain time of trying to determine what is next and how you're leading us forward. We pray that you would give us confidence that comes only from hearing your voice, that you would speak to each and every one of us and move us and move us to obedience, Father. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.